comradeship, dignity, amorosity, love, solidarity, fraternity, friendship, ethics, all these names stand in contrast to the commodified, monetized relations of capitalism. All describe relations developed in struggles against capitalism and which can be seen as anticipating or creating a society beyond capitalism, a society where we embrace the void. The universe is a cruel, uncaring void. The key to being happy isn't to search for meaning, it's to just keep yourself busy with unimportant nonsense and eventually you'll be dead. Stop fighting it. You're going to be okay. Face the void. Call it a one-way vacation to the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Friends, episode 159 of Embrace the Void, where we seek to liberate noses from grindstones. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are talking race and economics. So let's make with the human capital. All life ends in death, which we as a species are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Femi, assistant professor at Georgetown University and activist with the Pan-African Community Action Group. Femi, would you like to say hi to the void? Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Great. How are you doing, all things considered? Mm, still here. Yep. Every day, it seems like. So uh, I'm really excited to have you on to chat about sort of a, a little interesting back and forth uh, that I saw you and... Liam Bright having on uh, I guess, what is this? What is the site? It's um, Descent. Descent. Yes, uh, it was a, it was interesting because it was a whole back and forth on Descent. Um, so I want to talk about that specifically around racial capitalism. First of all, do you want to give folks just like a little bit of background about sort of uh, where you're coming from philosophically and where you fall on the great compass meme of life? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. I would say that uh, what the kind of philosophy that I do is ethics and social political philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I prefer to list the other things as explanations of how I do ethics and how I do social political philosophy. So, mm -hmm. you know, broadly the black radical tradition and anti-colonial thought is probably where I'm most coming from. And mm -hmm. that of course has pretty important overlap with anti-capitalist thought and um, histories of activism. And so those are things that I think about in the context of social political philosophy and vice versa. Uh -huh. So would you say that you're sort of a racial anti-capitalist in that kind of way? Yeah, something like that. I mean, I'm fine just saying communist and pan-Africanist. Okay, fair That's enough. That's pretty good, yeah. All right, so we can we can dive into that a little bit some as we get through this discussion. So this was a back and forth with you and Liam engaging with Michael Waltzer over the topic of racial capitalism. From what I gather, he wrote a response to somebody else who had wrote a thing about uh, discussion about racial capitalism, and his was sort of critical of the idea. Uh, and y'all came along to some extent and seemed to have tried to defend it. Uh, so do you want to start just very basic for folks who've never heard this concept before? What is your definition of racial capitalism? Because it seems like there's a couple of potentially different definitions that are up in the air here. Yeah, there are definitely different definitions that are up in the air. And so um, I want to emphasize that I'm answering with what it means to me, but how I would think of racial capitalism is just as a name. So a lot of people think of racial capitalism as a description. So it's capitalism, but there's something racial about it, you know, which isn't wrong, but it's uh, misleading, I would say. Um, so racial capitalism is the name for really a set of claims, 
but basically the idea that the way capitalism developed um, came out of broad forms of European social organization and the colonial spread of those forms of social organization. And what developed out of that colonial conquest was capitalism as an economic system. But that came scaffolded with the idea of organizing people racially in a social structure. And so those things co-developed at the same time and from the same events. Okay. So there's so basically there's some sort of connection between racialization and the rise of capitalism. Um, and it seems like there could be a couple of different strengths, you know, like levels of strength that we could apply that term. So one would be that like capitalism necessarily is always going to involve race and racism is always necessarily going to involve capitalism or weaker versions where we say that capitalism necessarily involves racism but not vice versa or just a purely contingent historical claim that in our current world racism and capitalism co-emerged and, and reinforced each other specifically in the European context. So are you endorsing sort of all of those claims or some of those claims? How would you parse that out? Uh, I would say my view is closest to the last thing that you said. Okay. Um, which is that, you know, as it happens, the way that capitalism developed and the way that racial um, antagonism or racial social structures, I'd prefer to say, the way those things developed, they, as a matter of historical fact, developed together and developed in ways that were and are mutually supporting. That's okay. just a description of what happened. So you're not as con wedded to the like conceptual argument? Because it seems like Walzer, in his pushback on racial capitalism, was specifically attacking like a very strong, almost like metaphysical necessity kind of claim that capitalism and, and racism are strongly, like are, are inseparable, um, not just historically connected. And is it... Like, is that, was that part of the original view, do you feel like? Do you feel like he is attacking a straw man there or like one one overly strong version of racial capitalism? Yeah, I mean, it would be overly charitable to say that Walter is attacking a straw man because Walter starts off what became the back and forth by admitting that he has no idea what this term means, okay. right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Walter is essentially debating himself and... He's decided that the view he's taken on what the words racial capitalism in that order mean are absurd. Mm -hmm. And then later in the debate, he tries to walk that back onto what people have actually said. But I think, you know, before we get into thinking about other people's views, we have to start there if we're responding to the Walzer debate. He's not mm -hmm. responding to racial capitalism the theory as has been developed over the last few decades or so he's responding to the phrase racial capitalism mm -hmm. so having acknowledged that um i think your characterization is right the way that walter is responding is assuming this strong metaphysical claim and a big part of our response which um i don't think he really responds to on the merits or the substance but a big part of our response was saying why that isn't really relevant for evaluating racial capitalism at least in the way that we think racial capitalism is best understood okay and i think it would also yeah. i think this is also you know more likely than not what robinson has in mind but robinson deep thinker and wrote a lot so you know i don't want to claim ownership over what robinson would or would not say 
Yeah, I was I was curious. I mean, understandable. You don't want to like speak in those kind of ways, though. It, it is interesting when I was trying to read into this. Some um, some of the analysis of Robinson does sort of read him. So the the phrase is something like he theorized that all capitalism was inherently racial capitalism, but that's still it seems like ambiguous as to whether he means all currently existing and historically existing capitalism is inherently racial or like capitalism by its very nature um, is inherently racial. Yeah. And, you know, you could complicate, you know, each of those specifications in a way that, you know, mm -hmm. reveals the same kind of disagreement and ambiguity, right? So by the very nature of capitalism, do we mean the very nature of the historical events that produce capitalism? Or do we mean the sort of conceptual nature of our understanding of this thing that got produced out of contingent historical events right yeah i i'm curious if you just to put it in in some other similar kinds of language in terms of like the post-colonial stuff uh there's a there's a paper that i really like the myth of catching up where they talk about how capitalism always involves colonies and colonizers, that there's always got to be an in-group and an out-group, an exploited group and an exploiter group, and how those groups are defined, it varies in kinds of ways. And so maybe we could say, you know, it's possible in principle that like there could be a capitalism that where the colony was entirely based around gender or something like that. It just happens mm -hmm. that historically it has always involved a racial element as well as potentially sexist elements would you agree with that yeah i think i think something like that is right okay right? um if we just look at how capitalism has actually developed which um i think in much of robinson's work but especially in black marxism i think that's overwhelmingly the focus mm -hmm. right? um how have capitalism developed and how have um, economic relationships developed as a matter of historical fact. So, so what happened? Mm -hmm. And these kind of metaphysical questions about what could have happened, um, you know, aren't irrelevant, but they're certainly not um, what Robinson seems to be focusing on. Um, and more importantly, uh, I think that's the right way to think about these things. Uh, I don't think these questions about what kind of um, system capitalism could be, you mm -hmm. know, conceptually speaking, are mm -hmm. quite as helpful as some other people seem to think they are. Well, so this is interesting. So let's. So as we've as I've pointed out, this is mostly I think, which ironically enough, given that Walter I think criticizes y'all in in his response to your response as being too theoretical in your arguments and not sort of addressing on the ground politics, and then kind of responds with a series of hypotheticals that don't seem to address on the ground politics. Right. Um, but it, it does seem like I you know I just want to really drill home at least because it seems like based on what you're describing, a lot of the objections to this view just kind of miss the point of the view. So uh, one, another person who has criticized this view a lot, it sounds like, um, is uh, Thomas Sowell, who often gets brought up in debates about racial uh, economic injustice and inequality. And his critiques seem to be something along the lines of, and apologies if I'm, if I'm misrepresenting them, or if they're more sophisticated, this is what I found, was that he sort of argues that you you can't really say that there's a there's a necessary connection or a strong connection between racism and capitalism and you know because like racism uh, precedes and slavery precedes modern capitalism substantially within historical traditions and such and so uh, it's not accurate to say that these two things sort of created each other in this kind of way. Do you want to, is, is the response there you feel like going to be fairly similar to what you've already been saying? Or is there anything you want to add to uh, like a response to that kind of criticism? Yeah, I mean, I think the broad outlines of a response to that position would be similar to the things I've already said. But, you know, there is a kind of, there's a kind of um, choosiness or arbitrariness about when people are willing to entertain complexity and when they're not. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm not, I haven't looked into Sowell's arguments. So, you know, for all I know, they're much more sophisticated than this. But just to respond to, you know, the version of the argument you just presented, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, it's a very simplifying view of what role race played in capitalism to assume that, you know, because you've answered this weirdly specific necessary condition argument that thereby we can you know, avoid thinking race has much to do with capitalism, right? You know, mm -hmm. I've had a skillet for years and I've only had a couple omelets, right? You know, maybe maybe <laughs> the connection between skillets and omelets is accidental. It's like, I guess in some sense, but, <laughs> you know, if I make an omelet this afternoon, I still, you know, might give the skillet some credit. I, I don't think these, I don't think these, uh, points about what necessarily travels with what again you know mm -hmm. in this deep metaphysical sense and this necessity um are nearly as illuminating again as many other theorists think that they are so okay uh, let me just play the uh whatever advocate whatever i'm advocating for here at this point i don't even know <laughs> you know you said earlier when we were talking you you mentioned that the you know, the phrase racial capitalism is not supposed to be an adjective describing a kind of capitalism. So that mm -hmm. does, I mean, have a little bit of a sense to it where it sounds like you're saying there's some there's a stronger something stronger being said here than, you know, capitalism has just happened to have the adjective racial affixed to it for all of our history. That that's that there couldn't, you know, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, it seems like there mm -hmm. is a little bit of that, like closer connection argument being made there? How would you kind of square those things? Yeah, so let me say a few things. One thing I didn't mm -hmm. say about the preceding analysis that you uh, mm -hmm. talked about is that it's also Cedric Robinson's view. It's actually integral to Cedric Robinson's view um, that the idea of racial organization preceded mm -hmm. capitalism, right? It's, it's, you know, the very first pages of the book are about how um you know europe was already recognized was already um organized in you know racialist or recognizably racial mm -hmm. fashion right um and that's why when capitalism develops it goes on to have racial characteristics because the social structure of the people responsible for spreading capitalism and for spreading the economic system that would congeal into capitalism mm -hmm. um were from a social structure that had these characteristics so so that would be an odd response to mm -hmm. racial capitalism to tell back to a racial capitalism theorist the very story that they've been telling right um, or at least an aspect of the story they've been telling mm -hmm. but i think more broadly to address the kind of metaphysics points um kofi and i um in the response to Walzer, we use the idea of a, uh, we use the metaphor of a house, a building. Mm -hmm. I think maybe, you know, maybe a vehicle might be better, maybe mm -hmm. like a race car or something. So let's say we have a race car. We want it to go faster. We might explain how fast it can go in terms of the stuff it has. We might explain how fast it can go based on the engine that it has in it. Mm -hmm. And someone could come along and say, well, hypothetically, this car could have a different engine and a different chassis, and it could have different tires and different axle, and it would still be a car. There's nothing metaphysically necessary given mm -hmm. from the concept of a car that we should make this these changes or those changes to soup up this car and in that situation i would just say yeah you're right there's nothing conceptually necessary about mm -hmm. what cars are like that make it so that we should you know modify this particular car in this particular way but it's not the essence of what cars are that I'm responding to. It's this particular mm -hmm. car that we're trying to soup up. 
And so if we're trying to make that car faster, we need to figure out what's going on with this car and not some other car that could have been built. Mm-hmm. And and in this case, the engine would be the racism. That's how, yeah. how this metaphor is working. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so I think that makes some sense. And I want to I want to tie this metaphysical argument back down to the ground a little bit because I think we might one way that that I think uh, Walzer tries to make a sort of case for why this matters and 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 why it's a problem for the racial. Uh, capitalism view is that he he thinks that he can make a kind of trivialism argument here where he says that you know any group that gets exploited by capitalism is going to be turned into a race in some way and in in a in a like kind of a self-owned kind of way he uses the examples of jews and irish people and italians as as people who would after the fact be racialized which is i'm pretty sure not how the history worked there um but it is i think like setting aside his not good examples right like i do think there is an interesting sort of question of what um, what value does the analysis add if it does end up being true that any group that is oppressed by, you know, or is, is you know, colonized by capitalism is going to um, be treated, you know, like be racialized because it's easier to oppress racialized people, right? Like, is that just the, that's the upshot of the theory? Like, that's what's important is that the realizing that, um, you know, race will always just be this tool for oppression? So the upshot of the theory is not just that it isn't an accident, isn't an accident that Mm -hmm. um, people colonized and made to participate in this global system of society will be segmented in this way. Um, The upshot is that that's actually a functional role of the entire system and knowing that it's a functional role of the entire system helps you figure out what to do about that system and i think you know a very easy way right this is why doctors want to know you know what the liver does and what the heart does right it's not just so that you can have a name for the thing it's so that you know, when you're sick, they know how to treat you and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. right? Knowing the functional role of the thing is important in a very ordinary way, which is actually, I'll just, I'll just say that it's important in a very ordinary way mm-hmm. um, for understanding how to respond to that system. So other than like making it easier to marginalize and dehumanize and exploit people, are there other ways that sort of racial antagonism is fundamental to capitalism in this way? Yeah. So, I mean, there's the kind of, you know, classic um, way of dealing with racial antagonism that a lot of communist and labor-oriented groups appeal to. Mm -hmm. So they'll say the point of race is to is segmentation, right? It's a method Mm -hmm. of segmentation. It's a way to divide the working class. It's a way to get them to fight each other rather than unify and fight the bosses. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's, that's true. I think it's more true than perhaps a lot of the proponents realize. Mm -hmm. So one way, one thing that you can think that that means is that it's just a distraction. It's just a distraction on the level of ideology. Mm-hmm. Right. So the idea is we make some phony distinction between people. And so we confuse them about what their interests are. Mm-hmm. And because they're confused about what their interests are, they fight each other instead of fighting us. And we, the bosses, win. Right. Um, but there's a more interesting thing that you could think. And this is the thing that I think is actually true. Um, and this is the thing that comes out in, especially, I think, later writing on racial capitalism, especially the writing on racial capitalism done by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Mm -hmm. which is by segmenting the, let's just keep saying working class, by segmenting the working class, by segmenting- Proletariat, no? (laughs) 
<laughs> Why not? <laughs> um, I, I like the ruled, at least uh-huh. for, for the time being. But by sure. segmenting the ruled, the, the ruling class cannot just make ideological differences or not just make ideological um, points of unclarity or obfuscation, right? They can actually make it true of the working class that different parts of the working class have different interests. Mm-hmm. They can genuinely create like a zero sum game between members of the working class or create various exactly. kinds of, uh, you know, um, tragedies of the, the commons or the, as people are not telling me that I should be called tra- tragedy of the uh, unregulated market. Right. <laughs> yeah. But they, they can create those situations. They can actually mm-hmm. create, they can actually change what people's interests okay. are so, yeah, that's, by that's changing good, their social position. Yeah. You know, I really like this because this is, I think, a valuable on the ground. So getting away from like hypothetical conceptual stuff and, and into like empirical reality, there is this really big debate in activism between different parts of the left over whether it's better to you know, do this as a class thing or do this as an intersectional race plus class conversation. And like, I think it, I think it's an open question about which of those is more effective. But I think what you're mentioning is a really important pushback on against the folks who are going to say we should be focused exclusively on class because the other thing is a trick to divide us by the rich people where the reality might be well, no, we're in a situation now where, like, interests have genuinely diverged enough that we need to talk about those divergences as well if we're really going to approach equity. Is that sort of how you see that pushback fitting into the discourse? Yeah, that's that's exactly how I see it fitting in. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's, that's valuable, yeah. Yeah. There's a view that... Um, I don't want to quite say it's a view just because Du Bois wrote a million things. Okay. But there's a way of talking about this that Du Bois thought of that kind of splits the difference between the thing I just said and the idea that race is just a kind of uh, magic trick that the ruling class plays on the rule. Mm -hmm. And that's to say, well, there's a real difference between racial social positions Mm -hmm. Um, but that real difference is exists you know on the plane of ideology or on the plane of psychology it's a mental sort of thing so you Hmm. you know he uses the phrase psychological wages which people make a lot of Mm -hmm. um and so you can see how that's kind of in the middle it's a mental thing but the function that it does is provide a mental reason, a psychological reason why, you know, even white working class people are invested in this system to some degree or to some degree more or differently than working class people of color. Uh huh. And I think that's, in the direction of what I want to say, but the reason I go further um, is because I don't think the interests that we're talking about are purely psychological. I think there's a psychological right. element to them, but I think mm-hmm. they're material differences. Yeah, I and think that makes sense. So, as materialists, we should be interested. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I mean, I think of all the points of this argument, I think the ones that are sort of the most shored up empirically would be the ones about how there is sort of systemic material inequality and not just psychological inequality that's that's sort of being inherited in a way that um is creating this this sort of generational underclass um and so it seems like the harder case to make is over on the persuasion side and the questions of like you know what actually works for bringing about change within this system and i'm curious since um waltzer complained that y'all's responses were overly academic and lacking in politics if you have kind of concrete examples about how you know using racial capitalism as a concept as a theory leads to sort of different applied policy changes that you think actually you know shift things more um on the ground for people 
Yeah, so I think, you know, the one thing I will say, you know, the credit I'll give Walter is that um, in his reply to us, mm -hmm. he actually does say, I think in a fairly concrete way, what the most obvious set of stakes are in a concrete way for this analysis, which is just answering the question, which fights, mm -hmm. which political struggles are anti-capitalist? Mm -hmm. I think he gets all of these wrong, or most of them <laughs> wrong. Okay. But, but he does at least, <laughs> he gets right that, you know, this is probably the most important question. Right. right question, wrong answer. Hey, that's that's pretty good for philosophy, right? Yeah, it's not bad. And so, you know, it's it's telling that he doesn't actually. Can you, you know, give an defend... example of like what? He, yeah, yeah, yeah. What he points to and what you why you think he gets that wrong, so people can understand. Yeah, I think the most important example is he says I'm I'm reading from his reply, the fight to reform, defund, demilitarize, or abolish the police is necessary, even though American capitalists can probably make do with the existing private security firms, which will expand and hire the unemployed cops. Mm -hmm. And so essentially the claim is it's necessary and good. He wants to give it a thumbs up, um, but it's not anti-capitalist because um, presumably capitalism could survive it uh -huh. right so he's trying um, again we're back to this like this this might have a racial element but it isn't necessarily anti-capital and so it's important to talk about racial fights and capital fights separately that's what we're getting at here yeah that's what we're getting at uh-huh um so i don't know a number of things go wrong here in my estimation um one the standard, the implicit standard seems to be that if capitalism can survive it, it's not an anti-capitalist <laughs> okay. um, struggle. Mm -hmm. um, that's a bizarre criterion that even the Russian Revolution of 1917 wouldn't, wouldn't sure. qualify as anti-capitalist on the basis of, right? Um, I mean, a weird connected thing is that he seems to think of national boundaries as having separate socialism so he might not agree with that um characterization of the russian revolution but i think that's just yet another mistake but it seems like it would also apply to the the chinese cultural revolution right given that they yeah. basically slipped back into a mixed capitalism yeah yeah so you know if he doesn't like the russian revolution example could just use that one um but i think more importantly the reason why, or let me put it differently. So what's more important and what's more telling about this response to the movement against the police and police violence mm -hmm. is that it's essentially, other than the whole will capitalism survive, is this the one struggle that needs to happen? Other than that mistake, it's really just circularity, right? So if you if you believe in the idea of racial capitalism, if that's your analysis, then you think racial injustice, racial antagonism has a functional relationship to capitalism. Right? Mm -hmm. So it follows then that things that take out, you know, load-bearing structures of racism are against something that capitalism functionally relies on. Mm -hmm. So if you believe in racial capitalism, if that's your analysis, then a movement against the police is anti-capitalist, right? Mm -hmm. It's anti-racial capitalist. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's exactly the kind of disagreement that racial capitalism is a help for, right? Because mm -hmm. there's people on, you know, the side I'm on, who would say the fight against policing is an anti-capitalist struggle. And there's people on Walter's side who would say it's some necessary other sort of struggle. Mm -hmm. And racial capitalism would be part of saying why I would 
want people to be on my side, why I would think they should be on my side of that debate. And that's a debate about what to do. Mm -hmm. Would you be at all interested in, like, if there was a poll that tried to figure out if, you know, if we code this as a racial capitalism issue versus a separately racial or capitalism issue, right? If we, if we try a bunch of different advertising campaigns on people and see like what gets them actually to engage with the issue more. And we found out that like, it actually works better if we separately talk about capitalist issues and racial issues, would that impact how you think that we should approach these issues? Would you feel like, you know, maybe maybe it was still true that racial capitalism as a theory is correct, but that we shouldn't emphasize it as much in our discourse? Or do you all, on the other hand, maybe think that, like, it would just be impossible for those results to occur in our world, given the historical connection here? That's an interesting question. I mean, my instinct as you know, somebody who organizes is to do what wins. Mm -hmm. So solid strat. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like, you know, it seems like that's the right approach. Um, and so, no, I'm not uh, attached to racial capitalism as a theory being a sort of litmus test or requirement for messaging around the campaigns that we choose. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so it might be the case that a fight against policing is functionally anti-capitalist, but it might not be the thing to say when you show up at a meeting. <laughs> right. Uh <-huh. laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I actually, now, now that I say all this out loud, I think that's probably exactly what my first guess would be. Okay. Yeah. That that like you, you actually do think it could be the case that you have to kind of code switch between different ways of being a, a crypto racial capitalist or racial anti-capitalist, I guess, in your case, versus sort of putting on different hats in different groups and talking about the racial versus the capitalist elements. Something like that. I I, I think you should I think you should be honest about what your politics are, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that you know, you have to always be shilling for your analysis of things, right? Sometimes you can just meet people where they're at. Uh-huh. Um, and that may be the thing to do in the case of police violence or healthcare or whatever else. Okay. So that's fairly pragmatic, um, which I think yeah. is, is valuable to point out, given that often I think when people raise these kinds of arguments, people tend to assume that there is an idealistic bent to it and that you're going to require sort of oaths of racial capitalism fealty uh from anyone who's going to engage with you on these particular topics right so i think that's that's valuable to clarify so you've mentioned that you are effectively a communist i think um, yeah which is i i tend to if i have to pick a term go with something like democratic socialism so and i'm curious you know, since we've been sort of talking a lot about the strong connections between capitalism and, and racialization, do you then think that communism avoids these traps of, of racialization or colonization or distinction of groups? Um, either, I mean, and I guess, like, can we say that it does if it hasn't historically managed to do so? Yeah, I've. The reason why I feel so flippant about these terms is because I think it's just the flip side of the argument or discussion, I guess is better to say, um, but it's a flip side of the discussion we were having in the first half of this call, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, what are these kind of metaphysical commitments to, you know, concepts of the good in the case of communism or concepts of the bad in the case of capitalism versus racial capitalism. Like, what do those actually commit us to? Mm -hmm. um, so when I say I'm a communist, I really just mean, um, if you ask me to describe what the ideal world is, that's the answer I give you, or the answer that I would give you would functionally amount to communism. Mm -hmm. If you ask me what kind of world we should build now, Mm -hmm. and what we should be building towards. I would give you an entirely different kind of answer. Mm, interesting. What would that answer um, look like? 
Um, I mean, relative to that question, I would say something like eco-socialism. Okay. Um, and what I would mean by that is I think that the fights we should prioritize are climate justice mm -hmm. in the you know, near to medium term political future. Um, and we should be fighting for largely democratic grassroots approach pro approaches to that problem. Okay. Does, do you feel that that, since you bring up eco uh, issues, do you feel like that one has a fundamental racial component to it as well? Do you see the sort of environmental fight as just another sort of colonialist racialized um, uh, battlefront essentially? Yeah, I do. I think um, the history of colonial conquest and neo-colonial management is a history of the distribution of climate problems and climate vulnerability mm -hmm. and general environmental vulnerability through a lot of different paths um, and a lot of different um, reasons why that's the case. But generally, mm -hmm. that's the approach I take to those issues. And so, you know, uh, I think the fight for racial justice and colonial justice just functionally is the fight for climate justice, at least in this century. This actually brings up another question that I was, I was pondering and actually put to Twitter while I was uh, doing research to discuss, talk, to chat with you, which is, you know, is there really a meaningful, worthwhile distinction to be made between capitalism and colonialism? Or is like capitalism mostly just colonialism with better PR? Uh, what are your what are your feelings about that? Do you feel like it's worthwhile to distinguish between those two systems or is one of them just a, a more efficient version of the other? Um, I mean, I think it's worthwhile to distinguish them just because it gets you out of, you know, the obvious questions of, well, what about colonialism 3000 years ago or blah, blah. Um, when we say colonialism, we often mean the specific kind of mm -hmm. era of European conquest of much of the world. Mm -hmm. um, even myself, I often use the word and that's what I'm saying. Um, but if we were really tracking the concept of colonialism, obviously it has a much deeper history, a much more complicated history, both um, before that era and during that era and in the present, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I think the important thing to notice is that capitalism developed out of a really specific history of historical events, right? The transatlantic slave trade, mm -hmm. um, the penetration of, you know, Indian Ocean adjacent markets, all these sorts of things. And that was one era of colonialism. And if we describe the social reality, the total social reality that resulted out of all of those things, then that's the thing I would use colonialism, the word colonialism to describe. Mm -hmm. And if we wanted to focus on the relationships of production that resulted out of those very same events and very same balances of power, then we could say capitalism. We're talking about, you know, essentially the same thing if we're looking at, at it as a set of historical events. But we might be more focused on the economic ramification of these events. Um, and if we're materialists, we might suspect that there's a good reason to be focused on the economic Mm -hmm. ramifications of those events and so you know i don't think getting rid of the term capitalism is the thing to do um i think the thing to do is to get real about capitalism's relationships to these other things that happened historically and these other results of the spread of capitalism mm -hmm. which is the analysis that is named by the term racial capitalism mm -hmm. okay i think that makes sense yeah and i, I don't 
I wouldn't say we want to get rid of the concepts. And I, I guess, I, I guess my feeling is when I ask about a meaningful distinction, what I think I mean is a meaningful, fundamentally ethical distinction, because I think that often people uh, in here a, a sort of negative connotation to colonialism that they don't immediately hear to capitalism. And it seems to me that fundamentally what your argument is that they should be viewed as sort of having comparable ethical connotations. Ah, interesting. That's, that's true, but I'm just so far gone on the left that I forget that that's true sometimes. <laughs> which, which part? The part where some people don't think that capitalism is horrible? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm glad we could reach across the aisle and have this conversation. See, people can't have impossible conversations. Y'all said we couldn't do it, but here we are. Here Me, we are. a moderate democratic socialist, and you, a full-on, I don't know, Trotskyite? What are we talking about here? Uh, no, this is great. Uh, yes, there, there are these people, we call them normies, who gen tend to generally think that capitalism is a good thing and has been the source of much of the good parts of their lives. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I guess that that's there. part of it, right? Some people <laughs> don't like capitalism, or sorry, some people don't realize that capitalism is a thing not to be liked. But mm -hmm. also, you know, most people, my experience is that when you say colonialism, most people are like, huh? Mm, interesting. Or they, or they'll be like, oh yeah, that's the thing the British did one time. <laughs> the thing with Britain why and are India. we talking about that? Yeah, I probably don't know about India. Um, right. Yeah. No. I mean, they so... did to us before 1776 and before Hamilton. Right. I. You know. So I guess I, I guess my thoughts on this are, and I, I'm setting aside the people who were you know, aren't going to be interested in this particular in these thorough analyses of history or something like that, but like. You were mentioning, you know, how we have to distinguish between the, like, European... Or we do sort of typically distinguish between, like, the European colonialism and, like, historical Roman colonialism or Greek colonialism or something like that. But I'm, I'm just curious, like, what's the upshot of separating those things substantially? I think, you know, there are folks who... You know, the folks on the on the other side of this, on the pro all of these things side, who are like, look, you know, the the colonialism of the ancient world gives rise to the, the capitalism of you know the colonialism and then the capitalism of the modern Western world that has produced democracy and all these great goods and such. And you know, I've seen people go so far as to make defenses of of even European colonialism on the grounds that it lifts people up out of poverty and things like that. So. I guess I'm wondering, is there really an, a benefit to not seeing capitalism as just sort of the modern incarnation of this ongoing process of, you know, the, the acquiring of wealth by a variety of names that involve oppressing people? I guess I think that um, the reason to think about colonialism and capitalism as different things or as, mm -hmm. I think the reason to think of them as different is it gives you a different picture of what we would have to do to be free. Uh huh. And and that's really you know the debate of the class reductionist versus the rest, and the debate that Walter portrays himself as intervening in is actually meaningfully what's at stake here besides the tactical question of which fights are anti-capitalist mm -hmm. but which world is the liberated world which world is the mm -hmm. one where we're free is it does it just require us to get control over the means of production um does it just require us to deal with problems of injustice that have to do with the way that we produce things are all the other forms of injustice downstream of that? I think mm -hmm. thinking of colonialism as, you know, a separate thing of mm -hmm. from capitalism um, gives you a different perspective on those questions than I think just anti-capitalism would give you. Okay, I think that's fair. So, like, what are some, getting back to a bit more applied side of things, I'm curious what this means in your mind for, like, a lot of the hot-button 
potential solutions to these kinds of persistent inequity. So, you know, for example, are you in favor of reparations? Are you in favor of, of like racially targeted reparations? Do you have thoughts about like, is it possible to close the racial wealth gap without some sort of um, explicitly racist, racially based affirmative action? So I'm in favor of reparations. Okay. I'm in favor of reparations, both at a national scale, national scale, and at a global scale. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's the story of how you get to the just world in the right way. Mm -hmm. But what I think that that means concretely in this century doesn't look very much like what most people talk about when they talk about reparations. I, I feel like 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 uh, going to the reparations museum and and Watchmen or you know getting your your reparations <laughs> check. No. Yeah, I, it doesn't look like either of those things. I mean, it may well involve both of those things. Okay. Don't get me wrong. I'm not okay. anti checks. I'm not anti museums. But I choose to focus on what the actions that we take in pursuit of reparations would have to accomplish rather than debating about which actions those are. Um, mm. I think people get that backwards. They start with the actions they want and then try to say why mm. those would carry the consequences okay. that they want. And the world's not that cooperative. It's, do you I have think, specific... So do you have specific targets then in terms of consequences that you think we need to be focused on rather than, than emphasizing certain means? What are the what are the ends that like you think are, are really important? Because I saw you, you were having a back and forth as well on Twitter about like how a lot of us get caught up in these kind of psychodramas around things like white fragility or, you know, white, um, you know, guilt complexes or all those kinds. You know, like just to give one example of the kinds of things that people get um, caught up in. Um, and so I guess I'm curious, what do you think are the real sort of meaty, like end goals that we need to be sort of laser focused on and avoiding these, these psychodramas in the meantime? Yeah, I think we need to be laser focused on climate justice and specifically pre preventing the rise of climate apartheid in you know, the global north, let's call it, or the mm -hmm. first world, and impending climate genocide um, throughout the third world, or mm -hmm. global south, if you prefer. I think that's the target. Mm -hmm. How are you feeling yeah. about that target? I'm radically pessimistic about this target. I'm incredibly pessimistic about it as well. Okay. Um, for a number of reasons. One, that it's already started. And mm -hmm. my perception of things is mm -hmm. that um, we're already seeing the right wing response, which is mm -hmm. um, draconian border policing, the concentration camps in the southern United States and the border wall. Yeah. You know, Greek, the Greek government just dropping migrants off at the beach, essentially. Mm -hmm. And the left, as far as I can tell, largely is just asleep at the wheel. Yeah, it does feel like we're so, like, caught up just trying to get back to basically being able to pass laws. And we're just watching sort of the crisis continue to unfold. And it doesn't even feel like we're getting close to being able to functionally be able to even manage the government again given the the death cult that appears to have taken hold of a large portion of our government um and yes. so yeah i'm i'm just so terrified that what we're about to watch is the rest of our lives of you know people trying to escape various forms of climate collapse and sort of being met with increasing amounts of violence at, at the borders yeah and the you know the situation is apocalyptic especially for the african continent right? mm -hmm. the projection that propublica and the new york times did recently said that something like one of every three people would be put outside the climate niche 
that humans had thrived for thousands of years by the encroachment of extremely hot zones. Mm -hmm. um, so functionally, we're talking about by the close of the century, the more or less the entire continent of Africa being uninhabitable. And that's just the ecological effects. So once we factor in migration and the resurgence of right-wing politics in attitudes towards migrants, who will be disproportionately black and brown. We're talking about something that looks to me like a global version of um, the backlash against radical reconstruction in the US South. Mm -hmm. Like people are talking about right. getting, you know, symbolic gains for racial justice um, or maybe getting, you know, or maybe even getting reparations and so getting material gains towards racial justice. And both of those are things we're thinking about, but we should also be thinking about the very real possibility of losing everything that's been won. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like we're, we're like poised for a kind of revival of like a global scale Jim Crow where like nominally we claim that we are working towards equity while in reality there's just lots of oppression sort of with a lot of blind eyes being turned yeah i think that's exactly what's been happening over the mm -hmm. last few decades and i think the climate crisis could supercharge that in a way that we're not at all prepared for yeah, and I think your concerns about the rise of right-wing extremism in response is really important because I do think there is, like, in a functioning, like, you know, like imagining we woke up in a functioning world somehow, right? Like, right. the solution at this point is going to have to be a lot of, like, aggressive support for immigration and resettling of people and like finding place you know new new infrastructure for people to live in since we've made certain parts of the planet uninhabitable um but instead of sort of being proactive on that front there's going to i think be a ton of resistance and then we'll end up you know i think with water wars and armed conflict about these things so yeah i'm i'm, I'm nervous <laughs> yeah so I realize we're running a little short on time here and I got to put, I got to torture you still. So <laughs> I wanted to ask you, are there any final things you want to say about uh, racial capitalism for folks who are trying to understand this more? And especially do you want to point folks to any resources, especially ones that are pretty accessible to, um, you know, non, non experts uh, for understanding these arguments? Yeah. I mean, I think everybody should read golden gulag by Ruthie Gilmore. What she's studying in that book is the rise of essentially carceral California. Um, but I think that the way that she does it is in a lot of ways, the most instructive thing about the book. So if you want to see what an analysis of politics looks like from, you know, a view informed by racial capitalism, you know, I can't think of many better examples of scholarship than that one. And it's not, um, you know, I mean, it's an academic work, but it's clearly written. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not bogged down in academic debates. It's trying to explain a thing that happened to, mm -hmm. you know, working class black and brown people primarily in a state over a few decades it's very readable great what did you think have you seen the um the documentary that came out a little while recently the 13th yeah was that a pretty good do you feel like resource for people i found that one to be pretty uh compelling in various ways but i don't know yeah i mean farther it's a good it's a good documentary and it is a good i think depiction of kind of the human cost of these things that we've managed to build in the US. But I think um, mm -hmm. an analysis of the history of the carceral state and violent policing that I think is probably, you know, more accurate maybe, or mm -hmm. more instructive 
there's maybe a better thing to say is Elizabeth Hinton's book on this from the war on poverty to the war on crime. Hmm. And she essentially says, this goes back. If you really pay attention to the Johnson administration in mm-hmm. the radical 60s and the response of the federal government to the radical 60s. Right, that makes sense. It all goes back to the 60s. Man. Yeah, it really if we does. Could only, if we could only just get back to the 50s, right? Everything was fine in the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did a conservatism. I apologize. <laughs> um, all right, let's, 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 I think let's do the enlightening round. I think we're there. Enlightenment comes from within. So for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to list a series of things. You are going to tell me if those things are real or not real. Those are your two options. You do not get to hedge. There is no middle ground. You do not get to explain what you mean by real or not real. Those are your only two options. Do you understand? I understand. Let's play. You're on board. Okay. Let's do Um, it. All right. So let's, let's just set the table here. Is anything real? Yes, real. Okay, let's find out what's real. Uh, is the external world real? Real. Okay, are colors real? Ooh, real. Is phenomenal consciousness real? Real. Free will? Real. Selves or persons? S- selves? Yes, like yourself. Oh, okay. um, real. Genders. Oh, oh, this is a tough one. Um, I'm gonna say real. Okay. Races. Real. Species. Real. Morality. Real. Rights. Not real. Knowledge. Real. God or gods. Real. Society. Real. Money. Real. Numbers. <laughs> um, two plus two is real. <laughs> Five is not real. No, I'm on a break. We're on a break from the culture wars. <laughs> um, number numbers are not real. Okay. Fictional <laughs> characters. <laughs> uh. Damn it. <laughs> Are fictional characters real? Are fictional characters real? Real. No. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Real. Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. Real. Science. Real. Natural laws. Not real. Mm, beauty. Wait, natural laws as in... Oh, shit. I can't as do in that natural kind of laws. What? <laughs> no, as in natural laws. Right, right. But there's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the natural rights people, and then there's, yeah, um, like laws of the natural world, like no. The, the inability to clarify goes in both directions here. Ah, goddamn it! All right, good. <laughs> so you're sticking with real there? Okay. I'm uh, sticking with real. All right, beauty. Oh, uh, real causality real and time real all right you survived that was, that was pretty strong really yeah. felt fairly confident I think most things shows. are real <laughs> you really I are really. That about myself. Yeah. yeah you're gonna get extra canceled for that all your all your friends on twitter are gonna cancel you for all the realism ones and all of your yeah. enemies on twitter are gonna be like you just said that numbers are fake but fictional characters are real <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm doubling down. Yeah, no, you've gone very pomo, and I appreciate it. Uh, well, thank you, Femi. That was a lot of fun. I really appreciate the discussion on both capitalism and that little bit on numbers at the end. Um, yeah. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you and your work? Yeah, um, you can check out whyeverythingcostsmoney.com. <laughs> That's <Okay>. where. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's where i do my uh little reviews and not really reviews just explanations of books that i think are cool mm-hmm. all right um yeah and go twitter there. twitter olufemio taiwo 
All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. All right. Thank you. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. We've got quite a few new patrons recently, so I'd like to thank Rambo Billy, Matthew Brown, former internet spaceship politician, Jess Abels, Luis Fernando Rodriguez, Nestor Buen, Intellectual Darkwave, Curdy, Rinthrin, uh, and Grant Godso. And as always, thanks to our $20 tier Duke patrons, blacknonbelievers.com, 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 Chad T., Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman, and our newest $20 patron, Patrick. Thank you very much. And most of all, all of the void thanks to our top tier patrons, Dave Maslich, the creepy eyes that stare at me from the void, and our newest top patron, Big Easy Blasphemy. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on podcast apps. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod, and if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content. Most of all, and I cannot stress this enough, you are the void, and the void is you. Mm-hmm.